welcome to another episode of unburden your health today is a special episode for me as my guest is a very dear friend and a family doctor not only to me but to my entire family for over 30 years dr hemant bailur is a renowned general practitioner practicing in dadar uh, for over 30 years now he and i have been friends since the last 37 years uh, we were batchmates uh, in mbbs i was role number 5 and he was role number 10 and we have built a wonderful friendship over these last 37 years he is uh, the go to person for my family despite me being at home my family still calls hemant as the first line of defense for any medical emergency and like my family he is the first person most families would go to as a family physician i believe one of the best things you can do for your own health is developing a long term relationship with a family physician that they trust it is important to find someone you feel comfortable with and with whom you can talk openly and honestly hemant thank you for coming on this show today so welcome so hemant you've been practicing for over 30 years i know you yeah, took over about, the practice just, just about 30 years just about 30 years yeah and i know that uh, you know after you finished your mbbs you had the option of you know getting into specialization but uh, i still remember that you decided to do various posts in cardiology in dermatology in gynecology in medicine because you were sure that you wanted to be a family physician which is uncommon i guess in today's world was it largely because that you know your parents were and your father is a very successfully practicing family physician at the ripe age of 83 was that the main influence yes, for you to take yes. that decision yes that 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 was probably the main influence i had seen him work i had seen both uh, success on a personal level as well as, as financially also so i i i had seen him do very well in life with that one profession he was already 20 more than 20 years into the profession so i i had no illusions about what i was getting into i knew exactly what are the kind of challenges or the advantages of being in this profession so i really have no regrets along the way so before we continue just wanted to you know take your inputs that you have been like i said almost 30 years as you said uh, do you think being a family physician is still a good option for fresh graduates who are just coming out of their mbbs curriculum yeah i'll i'll put it this way uh, the biggest investment that a family physician has to make throughout his career is his time that is an ongoing continuous permanent investment in terms of number of hours that you have to be available as a doctor uh, both in your clinic out, in uh, outside hours in the middle of the night to give telephonic advice occasional house calls so the i am not sure how much of the how many people of the current generation are willing to be invested that much into this profession uh, as compared to say 30, 20 years back or 40 years back otherwise it's a great profession to be in there are there, there's a lot of personal satisfaction in treating people the only drawback i'd consider now is there is a not it's it's become very unglamorous field as of today in the sense that a lot of people think oh ye to sirf gp hai specialist nahi hai super specialist nahi hai probably more so in a city like mumbai where you've got super super specialists by the dozen available everywhere multiple new big hospitals everywhere so consider a little down market these days but if that doesn't bother you it's still a great profession to be in a lot of people should be going into family medicine especially looking at how prohibitive it's become to start your own practice today in terms of real estate as well as in terms of uh, equipment required i'm sure a lot of fresh graduates don't have anywhere near that kind of funding financial backing it should be a very very sensible thing to do but i think this is where it weighs on the minds of people i have i have in the last 25 years or 30 years had my patients telling me on my face 
we don't want our doctor to marry that particular boy because he's just a gp they've told me this on my face wow <laughs> <laughs> that wo wo sirf family physician hai koi specialist nahi hai something like that so they have they they have it's so great, ironic yeah they it's have so great, ironic that they, they have the confidence yes, to speak to yes, you about it they have great faith in me they can open their hearts out to me they have the utmost confidence in my ability to advise them but they feel nahi nahi wo to sirf general practitioner hai aur wo wo to sirf gp hai whatever right right but i think even you know if i was to just step back and look at the role a family physician plays according to me i think it's an immeasurable role uh because it you know so to say a single point of contact for the entire family very much and very much. a great first level filter to decide you know what to do next you know maybe you can share some of your experiences over these last 30 years as to you know i don't know what stands out in your mind as being that first line of defense for any family or the first line of filter or a single point of contact and i know that you have been working with you know so many families uh in the areas that you practice so is there any few experiences that stand out in yeah, you know in yeah. such circumstances even even more so in today's world when you've got large corporate hospitals lots of super specialty hospitals lots of advices coming in from different sides uh your general, your family physician if you if you have one if, a, if an entire family has some doctor who they have pretty much good faith in and whom they would be willing to confide in so it, it's a huge uh, source of confidence for them or solace for them to know that okay we took an expert advice we went ahead because this doctor told us so because he was our family doctor and then when they when they have that kind of faith in you when they know that there is no monetary consideration involved if this doctor is extremely ethical he is not thinking about his benefit over here you you go and you go to him and ask him for his advice all he is going to think is about you he is not thinking about himself he is going to give you the best advice as per his current knowledge so that helps a lot that helps them a lot absolutely absolutely and you mentioned earlier about you know sacrifice on time yes and i know that i mean we have been speaking to each other for about this for so many years that if we as a group have to ever plan a social engagement on a saturday evening that's one evening we know where almost certainly you will not be able to join before us uh, before 11 pm at night Very true. Uh, because that's like your busiest evening uh, so how does that feel to you you know when you know that most of the world or your you know colleagues or friends uh, you know yeah. are probably having an evening off on saturday right. but you are actually in the clinic uh, you know actually slogging your backside off because it's the busiest evening for you very true, so how does that you know how have you reconciled to that one aspect so so again i think i think a lot of uh, what i am i have to do without even thinking of an option comes because i have seen my father doing it for 20 years social life in those days was was much less options for doing something on a saturday evening were much less in those days i also come from a not so affluent affluent background so my initial years my father's initial years of practice was more of the settling the family financially so he he didn't even think of those kind of things of how where can i go and spend my money or where can i go and party so it came right, a little right. it came a little naturally to me but i have seen the newer generation not willing to make that kind of a practice in my area there are at least two doctors who have converted saturday into a 9 to 5 show they say okay at 4 or 5 pm we are going to shut shop and then right. we, are, we are not going to we are not going to be available so i see that as the way going forward for gps that doctors are going to say okay saturday evening is my time i am not going to be available for you which is unfortunate because uh, i if somebody gets a wound or a fever at 5 or 7 in the evening at 7 o'clock Five or seven in the evening on a Saturday night. There's no way he can pre-plan for it. So what can he do? He sure, needs a doctor sure. at that time. Sure, sure. And I guess I think that that aspect of, as you mentioned earlier, about making a difference in people's lives and not only individuals but the entire family, is what sort of pushes you. But is there anything else that you know, you know, keeps you going every day? You know, what is it that you enjoy the maximum about practicing medicine the way you do? Oh, well. 
so a lot of my practice is not about huge major diseases which take months to recover or major surgeries so a lot of improvement in patient's quality of life or health is in the immediate so somebody with a high fever or somebody with a severe abdominal pain things like that where a specialist is not required um, treatments usually give results within 24 hours patient is much better so the results are seen pretty fast and get, seeing a patient getting better is probably always the biggest the the biggest reward for a doctor his Absolutely. his financial Absolutely. his financial remuneration is is part of the process but the right. the, the pressure is in seeing the patient getting better absolutely and i think uh, as you said that you know probably you can see a lot more of instant gratification in yes. that aspect that yes. you know you get instant feedback you know that patients are getting better if they're not getting better they come back and give you that feedback almost True. maybe within 24 or 48 hours sometimes even picking up the phone and speaking to you and i know that you know pre covid even sundays i think you had calls oh, yes. you used to do visits at night i think it's just over the last 2 years that perhaps yes. you have you know because of covid uh you know brought down this uh, home visit concept but i wanted to stress on these last 2 years you know that it's been really stressful for the entire population but especially the healthcare industry so can you share what are some of the most challenging aspects that you have faced over these last 2 years yes so covid itself was a challenge for us although the lockdown started on the 24th of march it wasn't till almost the 15th of april that uh, in my practice i started seeing covid or more than covid covid suspicious cases the cases who i thought could end up being covid but every every disease is uh, there's a there's a learning curve in the sense what you don't know cannot really enlighten you so right. so it, it's unfortunate but the first few cases will always be cases where you lose because you never recognize them in time you never diagnose them in time and how would you if you had never seen a covid case before so every right. every fever case is supposed to be a possibility for covid but it as it happened last year april and may were months of huge number of malaria so we anyways kept getting a lot of high fever cases and almost all of them tended to be malaria so it was maybe by the third or the fifth case in my clinic where patients had been treated with antibiotics or anti malarials and then they started going bad that we realized oh no this looks like covid because we had never seen a, a covid patient in person it's like people in the right. western countries cannot diagnose or treat tuberculosis much because they've hardly ever seen it you ask somebody hmm. coming from jj hospital he can smell tuberculosis he doesn't have to see it right so it it was that way so uh, in my initial cases were all cases who seemed to be doing better then suddenly became breathless then we sent them to hospital and invariably the news was always no sorry in two days that that patient died because those were days when remdesivir wasn't around not much was known even at the top level at the big specialty hospitals didn't know what exactly to do with such patients so we lost a lot of patients then but that's when the realization or the understanding of the disease also came so i i'm i'm sort of sort of the pre covid doctor my job is to suspect covid do an rt pcr and push that patient to a hospital my right. my job stops the minute somebody turns turns out to be covid positive so the urgency in my job is to catch them early so in the early days right. unfortunately sure. while we learned a lot about how to suspect covid or how to send for an rt pcr we lost a lot of patients also and also in those days the each test costed much more than it costs now and my True. my class of patients is usually a middle to lower middle class patient so even if one person test positive to tell the whole family to test was asking them to spend something like 10000 rupees more so that True. was also a challenge in those days so sure, it was sure. a learning curve as far as covid was concerned as far as the clinic itself was concerned it became more of how much sanitization how much hygiene to in- increase every single patient i touch the next step has to be go wash my hands with soap and water try to increase the distance between the patients while they are sitting outside enforce right. enforce a strict mask policy if you don't have a mask you get out of my clinic you're not even allowed to sit in the waiting room without a mask those right. are the things that were my major learning curves actually and what about 
your own safety what about protecting yourself or your father <laughs> so that i think uh, probably because we were kept busy in the clinic we didn't get so much time to scare the shit out of ourselves otherwise we probably <laughs> we probably would have but having a father who is 82 years old and who says no no i in spite of all the advice from friends and relatives saying look you're too old to be in the clinic and getting exposed he said no no we spent our lives doing this what else is going to happen let's just work together and that was also reassuring for me also the the fact that i would work and then go back into the same house where he was sitting didn't make too much sense as far as keeping him away from the infection so right. because we were together i think we sort of without saying it actually we we boosted each other's morale of course we tried to do our best regarding uh, hand sterilization and minimum contact with patients that that that's sort of the best we did right but i think uh, like i know most most family physicians or most consultants in india are not used to wearing a mask uh, you know during consultation throughout their entire and you, i know that you know your consultation starts in the morning at 9 and goes on till 1 1:30 and then again starts at 6 and sometimes it goes on till 11 so anywhere between 10 to 11 hours is you know uh, almost 10 hours of the day you sure. are consulting how was that experience of you know wearing a mask throughout those 10 11 hours so so in that sense i think we were fortunate that although the lockdown started on the 23rd of march it took almost a month for the trickle down of cases into my clinic happened because that was the time when we were doing several things wrong we wore masks which every time there was a gap between patients or something we used to take them off we used to have a glass of water and we realized that all those things are wrong and uh, if you wear a mask where the the band goes over your ears and not around your head it becomes very easy to take it off for those 5 seconds just to take a, a, a one gasp of fresh air right. so in those early days it was very tempting to take the mask off just for a few seconds breathe a little better and i realized that that's a big blunder so by the time the cases really started coming in it was a rule the mask went on inside the house before i left the house and came off after reaching home again so that could be anywhere from 4 and 1/2 to 6 or 7 hours sometimes on heavy days you don't get to drink a sip of water you don't get to do any damn thing it's as if you know it's been locked and you don't have the key we just right, don't right. touch our mask no matter right, what right. happens and uh, it it always helps when you are forced to do it without a choice you get used to it very fast so today it's it's almost a matter of practice i never feel like drinking water i never feel like taking it off no matter right. what happens the mask never comes off and Correct. and my personal experience of all the measures that are advised for preventing getting covid from someone else this is the only thing that really saves a person's life wear a mask as if your life depends on it you do that oh, that's and you a, stay away that's a you know a great line you know wear your mask as if your life depends on it and i think also the fact that initially it was postulated that uh, covid spreads through droplets whereas now we know it's uh, more aerosol Air, and aerosol. you know very airborne true, very true. so i think that also per- perhaps has been a learning curve overall not just you very know true. for us but across the world that you know the precautions we were taking earlier have also changed and the importance of masking is even more important today so by the grace of god it's now 15 months and i haven't tested positive which is a huge surprise to most of my friends including you how the hell has, <laughs> how how the hell has this guy not yet tested positive so right. i i think the only thing that could have possibly saved me is the mask you you near, really really need to wear the mask not as if it saves your life it saves your life that's it correct correct no absolutely i mean you know you have not taken a single day off in these last 15 16 months i think the only time you took off was when your father tested positive and you were forced by some of us to be at home for a week <laughs> yeah. uh, but other than that i think you must be one of those few doctors that i know of i mean or maybe anybody knows of who has not taken a single day off and you have been at the clinic this entire time i think that must have been a huge uh, solace for the patients around you and you know because 
I know many doctors around you perhaps shut their clinics for few weeks or months, it, but it, you were always there. I mean, you know, that's such a huge achievement. And you know, how did you manage to do that? I mean, how did you push yourself and you know that no matter what, you have to still be there yeah, every day. Yeah. So in the early days, I think since we just consciously decided not to think about it and just keep doing our job, uh, I think by the time it really became bad, that was around the month of. May and June, I think we the we got over gotten over the fear factor, which which worked in our favor. We said, okay, we are just going to keep working. We are going to use all precautions and preventive measures. So we kept sanitizing. The my my wife and son also joined in. So pretty brave of them, since they were right. actually directly in the line of fire. If we got it home, they were the first persons who would have taken it from us. Either of us had got it home. So. They, they in fact actually joined us in in sanit. Every night we used to sanitize the clinic with hypochlorite, because in May and June it was like there would be at least ten possible potential COVID positive patients who would have entered my clinic, and would subsequently test positive. So this is ten every day, right? Every day, every ten day, every ten. Day. And if you yes. and if you think of the second wave which came in March, April. There was a time when it it could be ten every hour. Also, we used, I used to sure. keep repeatedly getting phone calls. Doctor, all four members positive. Doctor, we tested everybody is positive. So the numbers right. were huge. Correct, correct, correct. And you know, you mentioned right in the beginning about you know, COVID being a huge learning curve. Yes. And I know in your practice, as you mentioned that, you know, maybe fever is one of the most Common presenting symptoms, and you said this overlap between malaria and COVID in the beginning of the pandemic. Right. But what's been your learning curve over these last, you know, almost 15-16 months? That how do you do? You have an algorithm in your head. I'm sure you do. Yes. That when you see a fever patient, how do you know whether it's COVID or not COVID, and how do you know it's malaria or not malaria? Right. right. What's your algorithm? Because that's perhaps the biggest learning that I have seen. From you, that you know, you pick up the phone and when we talk, you say, "No, today I I saw so many cases of malaria. I saw so many cases of dengue." Even before you get the lab results, and more often than not, the lab results just confirm what you are already thinking. Right. So, right. what's been your learning curve yeah. on this? So, for COVID, it's always been a medium grade fever, not a high grade fever. If you get somebody who has 102, 103, 104 temperature. Very less likely to be COVID positive, whereas you have in the 99 and 100 with a dry right. with a dry hacking cough, and very often the throat is pretty red on the posterior pharyngeal wall. The the posterior the behind portion of the throat is a little reddish. But the two words that you will always get is doctor, I have a low grade fever and I have this dry irritating cough. Those were always the suspicious ones, and just right. just a two or three day history. Unfortunately, there was so much media bombarding about a loss of sense of smell and taste that it was always dicey to really rely on the little less educated ones because it could be imaginary. But uh, right. quite quite a few educated ones would tell me very very confidently, "Look, doctor, I am really sure that my sense of taste is gone. Smell is a little more more difficult to be sure about, but sense of taste can really convince somebody." But it's always been that low-grade fever with a little dry hacking cough. Those were the ones right. we were always suspicious about. And that that continues even today. Yeah, I mean, even despite today. First wave, second wave. Even, yeah, that becomes yeah. your criteria to, you know, maybe the yes, yes. The flowchart in your head, yes, COVID or yes, non-COVID, starts much. with that even yes. today. You give me a patient above 102 degrees Fahrenheit fever, and I am not really thinking about COVID. they are right. invariably going to turn out to be malaria and this year we have a lot of dengue also so and you know if we just continue on covid and the learning curve uh, how many patients would you have seen which came to you at the clinic as you mentioned that most of your right, right. patients are very early on yeah, but yeah. have you also seen patients who come in a little more complicated stage oh yes i have i've had the misfortune of at least seeing at least three people who when they entered my clinic i could have told you that this man will not live for more than 6 hours very very oh. late very very late okay. i'll tell you a special color that they have instead of looking uh, indians are supposed to be brown skinned or, or whatever right. so you Correct. get you get a shade of gray which corresponds to their oxygen level 
you can be sure that if you put up an oximeter the oxygen level will be somewhere bit less than 60 it would be 50 okay. or less so okay. i have had three such patients one would be in the very early days when i didn't pick, it, pick him up and two others who were just brought so these were days in may and june when a lot of doctors from prabha devi to mahim had shut down so i had people i had never seen before in life people who didn't know me and were told through someone through someone that look there's a doctor in dadar who is not just seeing patients okay i had this other reputation i had people who had never met me in life who came and told me we came here because we were told you are the one doctor who actually touches his patients uh, right. in in a good way of course Correct. so <laughs> so so they said that there are very few doctors available and the, of the ones which are available majority of them don't touch the patient they will talk to you from far they wear a ppe kit and uh, they don't even check your bp because for that they would have to come close to you and touch you so we were right. we were told that you were one of the few doctors who actually touches his patients so we came to you so there were a lot of people whom i had never seen before and there were two such people who were sort of brought to me with uh, being held on both sides by their attendants and the one minute you look at them and that's not a color you see in live human beings they look right. they look practically dead they have very little expression on their face they're brought in like a walking mummy and you you know and both these patients i got a call the same day saying they were admitted in kem or some hospital and within a few hours they died so okay. real real bad stage 1 so real bad cases right and has uh, has you know gi symptoms you know intestinal symptoms in your experience been any of the presenting symptoms for the patients that come very, to you very few very few very few very often it is this fever cough cold and in addition to that i am also having a slight loose motion my other experience is the loose motion comes in a little later so at my stage it's not there but two days later there's also a little loose motions that is sure. that i have seen sure sure and while you also have patients who genuinely have symptoms i guess covid has also played a big psychological impact on people yes uh, you know so a lot of maybe you know false scares or you know oh, yes. Uh, yes. you know false alerts you know that people think that they might have covid uh you know what's been your experience there you know people who already think you know i you know i have already lost my sense of taste or smell which is sometimes very psychological as you said so they, or you know the symptoms of just non covid viral fever you know maybe overlapping true. So, so how how so, have you dealt with that so we've had it both ways uh so the 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 false uh, the false sense sense of belief that the belief that i have covid is much easier to treat in the sense you say okay you, if you can afford it go and do an rt pcr so my right, right. when my clinical judgment has told me that no this doesn't look like covid and yet if it's an affording patient who can go and do an rt pcr or, uh, or from his own pocket he can pay from his own pocket i say look i am pretty sure you don't have covid but if it's that important to you what happens is i have a small child i have a grandchild in the house i really need to be sure okay okay go ahead and do it but rarely have we been proven wrong in the first wave in the first wave we rarely got proven wrong in the second wave one person brought it into the house if you had a house of four people five people six people practically everybody tested positive in spite right. of nobody having any symptoms so we had a okay. lot of we had a lot of asymptomatic positives in the second right. wave in the second wave which really added to the numbers sure sure and uh, you know you you mentioned that in the second wave you know it spread more easily within the same family but did you also have you seen in your experience uh, the severity of symptoms different in the first wave and in the second wave or you know with this whole delta virus now coming in are you seeing a different clinical presentation in terms of severity of disease so on the whole the numbers are much less now now in this month uh, in the last few months the numbers are much less so my personal experience of what this particular wave this currently the, the, the delta virus is doing to patients is much less because in my own practice i have had very few patients majority of them them right. are the, the one factor is they are younger now i have i have many more people who are working class people who have had fever and their companies have forced them to test and they have tested positive the result right. being that they've had 14 days quarantine at home that's all 
just one patient I have to send to hospital. Otherwise, generally the experiences, most of them are doing well. Uh, a lot of senior citizens have taken one and most of them have taken two doses of the vaccine. So I have mm-hmm. had very few uh, people above the age of 50, 55 who have tested positive this time. What's been the, you know, the youngest patient that you diagnosed or, you know, you confirmed in your clinic, in your experience, who tested COVID positive or who was COVID positive, the youngest that you have seen? The youngest would still be about 25. Although okay. I have although I have three, three children I know who have tested positive because an entire family was tested because one person tested positive and that child also sure. tests positive. But that's that's an asymptomatic uh, person who who was just made to stay at home. Almost like an incidental finding. Incidental finding, absolutely, not right. really. But somebody who's come to your clinic, generally most of them have been above the age of yes, twenty-five. Yes, in, yeah, above the age of twenty-five. In the right. in the first wave, it was I would say above the age of forty. I had I don't think I had anybody above 40, below forty. No, because we are just in that time where. Maybe the schools might get restarted, right? And you know, right. children below the age of eighteen are still not uh, allowed to be vaccinated. Right. So your your thoughts on that is that I mean, you know, I know it's a slightly uh, tricky topic and maybe I know. political I know. also, but just just your thoughts whether you know uh, are children at risk because they are not vaccinated, uh, but on the same time you have not seen too many children. You know, it's a sort of I, a fine balancing act, I guess. So, so if if someone someone were told to me in on the basis of my practice, what's my guess about a third wave coming, and what's my guess about a small children being more affected? Affected, I think we are not going to see small children getting affected in the sense requiring hospitalization or seeing deaths. We would get positive. Right. We would get positives. I think the children are going to do much better than what we fear. But okay. but of course, a third wave is always possible in the se- in the festival season if really people go mad again and just enjoy themselves. Yeah, that's a question being asked of me because you know we've done close to two million COVID tests over the last uh, you know sixteen seventeen months. Uh, whether it's you know is the third wave really going to happen? And I say it's 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 a it's a million dollar question really. But in your experience, do you think there's a uh, you know a real sense that the third wave will happen or what is the role of vaccination according to you that has you know impacted the third I, wave i think if if our vaccination numbers had been double of what they are today because uh, the shortage in vaccines has really played a huge role in how many we've managed to vaccinate so far from right. from july onwards i hear less and less number of patients who tell me doctor i stood in line at this place for one hour doctor i tried four places I am just not getting the vaccine. That has become much less, which was a continuous trend through April, May and June. People were desperate right. to get the vaccine and were not getting it. That has eased up a little, but uh, the vaccination is definitely going to make a difference. Instead of whatever we have, this 10% or national figure, or Mumbai has a better score, I think. We've got 25 right. or 30%. Had we reached even 40 or 50% by now, I'd be that much more sure that we will not have a second, third wave. But I think unless the virus itself does some fresh trick, a delta right. is replaced by something else and some new form or something, I think I think we won't have the second wave if the government stays very the third very, wave. You the mean. third wave if the government stays very firm in not uh, allowing the month of Shravan turning into a real festive season for the way it wasn't last year. Right, I know, and you know, with the upcoming festival of Ganpati, yes. you know, maybe just in, Scary. you know, uh, over a month away, yes. and the other is sort of the epicenter of Ganpati celebrations. Oh yes. How was it last year, and what do you think will happen this year? You know, what's your, what's so, your on-ground experience? So last year, in spite of all the restrictions, in spite of a lot of more severe restrictions being in place, we did see photographs of. The market areas near Dadar station being really crowded before Dasra, before Ganpati, before many of these festivals. So that's really that really scares. What happens is a lot of Maharashtrian Mumbai converges onto Dadar to buy stuff. Right. It's the it's right. the shopping center of Maharashtrian Mumbai. The fru- right. the fruits, the flowers, the vegetables, the decorations, the pandals, everything at the home level. I'm not talking of the sarvajanic level. The home right. level requirements for festivals 
everything gets satisfied in dadar that's supposed to be it, it, the economical area where you could get something for 10 rupees also and for 100 rupees also that kind of sure thing. sure sure so so you think that you know this is a potential hazard yes, that you yes. know the upcoming ganpati yes, festival yes. or upcoming maybe other festivals as the festive season start could be you know if that is well managed as you said perhaps we can prevent you know a major third wave yes, and vaccination of course vaccination uh, most of the people who got their uh, first dose of vaccine the non healthcare workers even with the 84 uh, day rule uh, starting august i think very shortly now they're all getting eligible for their second dose so if all of august we manage to give second doses in large numbers i think we'll right. have one half the game okay okay well let's hope we can do that you know you you mentioned in i you know that that line really stayed with me that patients came to you because they were told that you know go to this doctor in dadar because he actually you know touches the patients physically and you know that's been a big scare for the healthcare industry where many doctors have actually resorted to teleconsultation were you ever tempted to think about it did you know did you have anybody else who had that experience uh, were you ever thinking about that maybe i should get into teleconsultation or that's never been your you it, know it, it's, it's it's never crossed your mind also it's never crossed my mind because i know exactly what it 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 involves uh probably at a consultant level especially if you're not on the surgical side teleconsultation the, would work to a large extent especially for second and third consultation right. i'm i'm sure every clinician wants to see and touch a patient on his first visit because there is something about seeing with your own eyes that you just do not get with a camera or a video or whatever i have i have had patients who come and told me i have a problem in a slightly awkward area of my body and i am a little hesitant to show you and my answer is always 5 seconds of what i understand by looking at it is better than 5 minutes of you chattering about it because right. there, there there is an advantage in in getting the touch and the feel of something that you don't get just by listening to a patient so i know uh, people these days patients bring me photographs of their relatives or their personal private parts to show me to look this is what i have because i am i feel awkward to show you and it helps right. it's better than not seeing it something is better than nothing but teleconsultation right. is a big problem at gp level because uh, if somebody has fever if somebody if you tell me on the phone uh, it has happened with me doctor my my cousin stays in borivli and he's tested dengue positive so my answer to him is i don't i don't treat his blood reports i treat him so i need to see him for 5 minutes because what right. happens is they say unka doctor bolta hai ki admit kar do maybe he is right but to give you that answer i need to see the patient right right so the, and it the takes patient. us back to our you know i guess our training in mbbs where physical examination the use true, of your true, true. you know history taking you know palpation yes uh, using the stethoscope very much very or you much. said you know looking at the you know the posterior aspect of your throat which becomes very critical in you being able to tell whether this could be a covid patient or not i don't think any of these aspects perhaps true. will get addressed appropriately through teleconsultation true true so it has a big drawback it would work if you have already come to me and show i have examined you i have made up my mind sort of as to what are the three first three possibilities then you do your blood test and then we have a teleconsultation where you just give me the feedback over the last 3 days that could right. work but the very right. first visit being on the video would be a little problematic i heard. so a follow up is perhaps still something which could be done but a first visit i guess yes, yes. needs that you yes, know yes. look feel touch i guess everything. very much so very much absolutely absolutely you mentioned about fever and you mentioned about malaria and dengue being maybe uh, sometimes endemic in the area that you practice uh do you have a mental algorithm for that how do you differentiate between malaria and dengue uh, and you know you also when we speak on the phone you often say you know i got vivax and i got falciparum uh, you know so maybe you could share your experience yeah. on first malaria versus dengue and within malaria uh, you know how do you differentiate between vivax and falciparum purely so, on clinical so ten, judgment so 10 years back any case of high fever high fever being anything above 103 would be either malaria or typhoid fever enteric fever enteric fever has right, gone down right. a lot over the years 
maybe BMC has greatly improved on its sanitize, sanitization method, its, its water sanitation. But uh, as of today, malaria and dengue would be the, the big concerns. Honestly, there is no one point which makes you suspect dengue. Dengue are, always becomes the differential diagnosis for Plasmodium vivax actually. Vivax, malaria and dengue would both give you 103, 104 fever, often with shivering. And you right. ask for both and someone will come Vivax positive, someone comes Dengue positive. Falciparum right. is probably the big chupa rustum of, the, of all the infectious diseases. Very difficult to diagnose. Low-grade fever, somebody comes only with loss of appetite, somebody comes with just 15 days of malaise. It gets scary because you're tempted to say kuch nahi, kuch nahi, you're just recovering from a fever, to kuch nahi hone wala hai. and you do their blood test. Invariably these days, the one thing that we also see along with the Vivax being positive, the platelets being low, is that the bilirubin has really shot up 12, right. 14, 16. And they also sometimes have high-risk creatinine levels, very sudden. Right. Going, right. Over, going from 1 to 6 in just 48 to 72 hours, and going okay. from 6 to 1 again in another 48 to 72 hours just because you treated okay. the dengue. You hit, okay. hit them with a good antibiotic, a good anti-malarial. All dengue patients, as you know, dengue is a viral infection, so we don't have a specific drug. So the, the, the gold standard for treating a positive dengue test is you hit with a good anti-malarial and a good antibiotic. And you keep watching the other parameters, that is urine output, intake. If he's not vomiting, if he's not going into oliguria, if he's otherwise comfortable, he can be at home. If you feel he's vomiting a bit too much, you don't know how much of medicine and food he's retaining, he's better off in a hospital with an IV, IV glucose line because then you're right. assured about the glucose, you're assured about the drugs going in. True, true, true. You mentioned, you know, that, you know, you've seen, you know, over the last 30 years, various disease showing different trends. So maybe your your experience on, you know, some of the disease trends that you have seen in the last three decades and how have those trends been affected because of COVID in the last maybe one and a half years? So one disease I would really, really talk about is tuberculosis since it is so rampant in India. It's omnipotent, omnipresent. Tuberculosis was so much easier to diagnose and treat, say, 30 years back. You got a patient of high fever who didn't respond to a good antibiotic. If you had a little cough, invariably it was pulmonary, it was chest. So one x-ray got you the diagnosis. We had four or five very good drugs. You put them on treatment within a month or two, clinically improved, weight gain, x-ray showing resolution. Six to nine months patient is out of the wood. I used to tell my patients in those days, 30 years back, if God had to give you any one big disease, please ask him to give you tuberculosis because I guarantee you, next year at this time, you will have forgotten about your major illness in life and you, your life would just go on as usual. Today, it right. has over the years, with drug resistance coming in, it has become so much more difficult to treat, so much so that we stopped treating tuberculosis on our own. Every person whom I diagnose as tuberculosis, I involve either an MD physician or a or preferably a chest physician to do all those right. additional tests that we have, NGIT and all the, dr the drug sensitivities, so that we don't waste those first two, three months in giving drugs and then realizing nothing is working. So sure. become a difficult drug to, disease to treat, become a disease where you we have started losing patients again because of total okay. drug resistance. I have lost two patients in the last five years. Probably in the 50s and 60s, people were dying of tuberculosis. After that, Ever since rifampicin came in, people dying of tuberculosis had almost gone away except the people who just kept on defaulting and the alcoholics and things like that. But right. now people are still dying of tuberculosis. So that has changed. In COVID times, one, ex one experience, last August, I had a patient of fever who didn't respond to anything. Of course, RT-PCR was done, came negative. Eventually, X-ray showed Cox. I said, look, this is the problem. I don't treat tuberculosis alone on my own. For the next 15 days, the woman, her, the patient's wife said, I have hunted hospitals to just get an appointment of a chest physician who would see him personally, physically. This was May, right. May June last year. She said, not a single hospital, not a single private clinic is any MD physician or chest physician available to see him. You do what you want, you start treating my patient. And I did what I did 30 years back. Six months down the line, the patient is all right.
he responded okay. to the primary okay. line of drugs i didn't have to do anything more he obviously showed rapid response and he's fully all right but have you seen any diseases you know because of lockdown and people not stepping out the incidence of some diseases have come down over the last one and a half years because of covid uh, respiratory ailments are much less because obviously okay. pollution went down people weren't leaving their houses so they they weren't exposed to outside elements so in general except for the malarias and the uh, malaria was the only thing that remained omnipresent all along but otherwise overall viral fevers everything went down a lot in the period from april to say october those 6 months we saw far less infectious diseases right right you mentioned about drug resistance in tuberculosis but you know one of the big challenges that we are seeing when we do cultures in our lab is the rising incidence of drug resistance in you know community acquired infections like urinary tract infections very much what's been your experience overall in drug resistance and what do you think is the root cause you know they say there's you know misuse of antibiotics or you know absolutely, people absolutely. tend to prescribe higher antibiotics so maybe your just your input on overall your experience on drug resistance overall antibiotic abuse is definitely the main reason the and the the things that contribute to it are the fact that you can buy almost any antibiotic off the counter from any chemist and most patients are are really intelligent and stupid at the same time so they will take an antibiotic take it for a few days and stop using it antibiotic resistance is an entirely man made thing people don't know when to start they don't know when to stop and then of course you have so many doctors with dubious qualifications who are writing left right and center all kinds of antibiotics and you know you mentioned that you know now when you get a tuberculosis case you refer to a chest physician uh, you know who are the other uh, specialists that you commonly collaborate with what what specialties do you need to you know keep in touch with uh, from referring your cases to you know what what you think can be managed by you you obviously manage but where you think you need help from a specialist uh, you know what's been your experience so, in that so, over the so, last few so, years i have a line for that a good general practitioner is not just one who knows what he can do but knows what he can't do so the importance of right. referring a patient to a hospital or a consultant the most important part of it is knowing when to do it you do it right. too you do it too late and you've really given that that person who's far more qualified than you very little time to help this patient you do it too right. early and then you're probably doing it to all and sundry which is not a good idea anyways so True. to to be on the alert to, to to be able to tell yourself okay this is not going the way i planned this is not showing the results that i would have expected in this much time frame and hence i need i'm either missing something or whatever i am done is not enough and i need to do something more so general surgeons are at the easier lot because you know acute abdomens blunt injuries traumas anywhere any place where you suspect a fracture or something you obviously would send to a surgeon it's the physician part that has to be a, it's a it's a nuanced thing which is the cough or fever patient who i need to send to uh, a to a um, md medicine or a md chest or gastroenterologist or a urologist these are right. are the commonest the gastroenterologist urologist and the chest and general physicians are the commonest referrals dermatologists are, are so much easier you treat them you don't see improvement patient knows he is not getting better you know he is not getting better the next step is to show to the dermatologist you know one thing that uh, we have experienced is because of internet and because of dr google yeah uh, maybe you know the awareness levels of people has evolved over the last few years what's been your experience you know with uh, with you know the overall uh, you know the awareness level of society and you know has been you know that been a challenge for you what have you observed in this overall you know increased level of awareness with society so probably there are i'll put them into three categories of patients one are the less educated people who have now started using the internet and their mobiles so they come up with vague information and if they, if you are sort of their uh, family physician for years together they have full faith in you they just throw a few tidbits at you doctor i heard this doctor i heard that 
it's easier to tell them no no don't worry this is not the case or that is not the case or okay we'll think in this direction then the right. second class is the educated people who are also uh, aware that you are if you are going to give them an advice they don't need to second guess you because you are not you are not thinking about your benefit but you are thinking about their benefit so they they bring it to us they tell us straight forward they look this is what i read on the net what do you think so it's easier to convince them this way or that way once in a while they come up with a good idea and there's never any harm in uh, following up on their leads also you have to go with an sure. open mind the right. this last one third is always the the over smart uh, person who <laughs> who thinks he who enters your clinic more to educate you than to get any help from you so <laughs> so he this is the person whom you have to either say look i don't think this way or they are the, they are the challenging people but it helps to some extent because a lot of times these days we don't have to do a lot of explanation that we had to in the past because they've already taken it from the net so we just have to sure. sort out what is what makes sense and what doesn't make sense sure 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 and now that you've been practicing like we said almost for 3 decades what is your take overall on the healthcare burden that we face in our country or in our city and if you were to make a wish list you know for healthcare delivery in our country you know what would that be according to you so uh, i i would be you know i wouldn't be in the right place to talk about the country because i have never never left mumbai and i am aware of the difference differences in healthcare facilities in mumbai compared to the other cities and and the villages and towns let's not talk about so in mumbai right. we really have a glut of good doctors good facilities good labs uh, so i think the the one thing that finally matters is your ability to pay unfortunately i still think more than 75 75% of indians pay out of their pocket for healthcare so right. so cost is a concern so any time some even laboratory with a dubious reputation comes up with a healthcare package which seems to be so much cheaper than somebody else everybody wants to rush there and then it becomes difficult to dissuade them because their whole concern is look i hinduja or some other place is charging me 4500 and these people are offering to do 25 more tests for just 2000 so the right. whole idea of itne sare tests itne kam paise mein works great for them where we know that they are doing a lot of nonsense and then their reputation isn't what isn't isn't considered to be great at the peer in at the peer level i can't tell right, them that what's right. happening in the industry level what we have heard of we can't really sure. go into that so the the real drawback in mumbai city is how much can you afford so if you have somebody who says i have no problem of paying just tell me what would be the best i would be far more comfortable in sending him to the right place sure. at the right time sure so affordability for you affordability, probably is a big yes. And, is a and, big big uh, change that is. you would like to see yes yes absolutely absolutely yeah and i know you know that uh, as uh, medical practitioners we do get exposed to uh, cmes or continuous medical yeah, education yeah, yeah. um you know your experience over the last 3 decades how have you kept yourself abreast with you know whatever are the global best practices or you know any changing trends Uh, how do you keep get, yourself updated on that so cmes mainly cmes uh, uh, one of the driving factors for we were always attending good cmes so we always looked at who speaking and what's he speaking about so there are some right. topics which probably are just academic interest but were very little value to me in practice but then there are some things where i would really be interested in knowing what's what's the latest here so whenever we right. saw something that made sense and if it was again our problem was we could attend cmes mainly on sundays weekdays becomes a little challenging given the time that we have to put in the clinic so we Correct. made it a point to attend cmes when a few years ago mmc made it mandatory to attend cmes to get those points it just helped right. along it helped along the way so you kept an eye on that also but cmes are the way to go if you attend cmes which are relevant to you you would end up getting a little more information on what matters to you sure sure and you know sometimes you know you get to as you said keeping an open mind from a patient but even medical reps 
who come with you know uh, maybe some new drugs true, or true. you know people who visit you from some labs maybe expose you some you know some new information or knowledge right. what's been your experience yeah. there so uh, very often the first exposure to a new drug drug uh, uh, a new pharmacological drug comes from representatives the medical right. reps come and tell us this is we've, we've now come out with this and this is the brand name and this is the price and then you tend to read up a little you ask around with to your friends you're lucky when you have pharmacologists as your close friends so you can right. always you can always ask them iske bare mein kya because they they will always hype up the the information coming from the pharma industry will always be a little more hyped up saying this is the best but this is far better than this and then you right. g- you get the reality check also when you ask the people in the know they say okay this is better but not that much better or this is a me too sure. drug is the same sure. it's the same class of drugs so don't expect too much of a uh, increased benefit so d- d- sure. edu- education does come from there right 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 i know i know that over the last uh, maybe 12 14 months whenever you wanted to do a test and you know fortunately all your rt pcrs that we did came negative and you always joked you know that you know are you i is your lab doing the right ah, test because I, you know i'm i'm at the i'm at the firing line of patients it, and you know it's always come negative even the antibodies kept coming negative Anti- <laughs> but fortunately after you have taken the vaccine antibodies have come positive so that's good yes i hope that you know you know you continue to remaining rt pcr negative and antibody positive continue to you know serve the patients continue to be there for society uh, what is it that you know you do for yourself you know what is it that you do to take care of your own health uh, to make sure that you know you have that defense available you know you have your your immune system working probably at its best uh, but anything that you do for yourself to unburden your own health not too much more except that the the, the increased focus on sanitization the the little more focus on washing hands properly keeping clothes separate so this was the risk from day one that you enter you worked and then came back to a house where you have a wife and son in it who were di- directly in the line of fire so you need to you needed to protect them also so you needed to do a little more extra you needed to take extra measures to make sure that everybody remains safe uh, right. other than that in terms of vitamins minerals not too much that was more of general what was being done till now i one has to be grateful if one believes in god you thank god otherwise you thank whatever upper power there is so i have right. a, i have a few patients who are more like my bhakts who say how can you get positive what you've done god is going to make sure you never turn positive turn positive <laughs> so that's so nice so to hear so being being ethical and being uh, one thing about being ethical in your practice is you may not have to tom tom it but the word spreads you de- you you get a reputation for being straightforward you gain a, get a reputation for thinking about your patients more than you think about yourself and the information spreads so people know okay if this guy says something he's not saying it because he has an ulterior motive so generally they are very grateful in fact the level of gratitude in these last 15 months has gone up a lot especially they keep coming and mentioning when there was no doctor available you were there for us so we are very grateful to you so those things help no, i'm sure i'm sure good happy. wishes and prayers of people who have benefited by your presence you know plays a big role absolutely i completely believe in that and i know that you know you've got a amazing support at your family level your father being the biggest inspiration for you but also your wife is an amazing cook and your son i don't know whether he's influenced you to take up gymming like he does so i don't know if that has played a role in your life or not weights <laughs> are not for me he, he keeps on increasing the sizes of his dumbbells and his weights I can't do that. <laughs> no, but I'm glad that at least you know you are taking care and you know making sure that you remain healthy. Okay. So thanks Emma, thank thanks. you for taking time to speak to me today and I wish you good health and happiness and you know keep doing the great work that you have always been doing. Thank you for being on the show today. And that's a wrap for our episode today. Thank you so much for listening. New episodes are out every alternate Tuesday. If you like this episode Don't forget to subscribe to our show. You can listen to our show on all major podcasting platforms like Google Podcast, Apple Podcast, and wherever you listen to your podcast from. 
If you are an Apple or an iOS user, you can share your ratings and reviews on the Apple Podcast app. If you have any questions related to health or would like to share your feedback, you can reach me on my social media handles at Dr. Sanjay Arora on LinkedIn and Facebook and Dr. Underscore Sanjay Arora on Instagram.